welcome to the sermon podcast of Redeemer Anglican Church of Franklin, Pennsylvania. Through every sermon, we hope that you are encouraged by the Word of God and the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. To find out more about our church, visit our website at franklinredeemer.org. So there in our society has been a growing shift towards the privatization and personalization of faith. I mean, it's, it's hit kind of levels that are now being noticed by sociolo- sociologists and, and researchers, but it's been a long, gradual trajectory. Um, in 2020, uh, before COVID actually settled in, um, there was uh, a, an extensive study that was done on the religious practices and, and beliefs of, of Americans. And, and even at that point, there was still 70% claim to be Christian, but only 30% are involved in a church. Uh, those numbers are even lower and more divided um, following COVID. Even within our own county, within Venango County, um, just under 70% of our area um, has no faith community that they call home. But if you look at the surveys and statistics, the vast majority um, would still hold to what would be understood as as a, a Christian faith at least somewhat Christian faith. There's a lot of reasons for it. But another survey that I had read in a study that was done on, on those who, who, who claim to be Christian but have given up on the church, there's a number of, of prominent reasons. Um, and, and, and many of them uh, are very understandable and legit. I mean, one of the things is it's because of being hurt or abuse by the church. We see that making its way through the news, and that can be horrifically painful and challenging. But also a lot of the other reasons are... are, are, are some just, the, um, a prominent one was that just they don't get anything out of church. It doesn't speak to them. Um, one of the prominent ones is that the church is, is full of hypocrites. And, you know, kind of true. I, I love, I remember hearing one um, priest say his response to those who say to him that the church is full of hypocrites um, he said, he always says, no, it's not full. There's plenty of room for more. I mean, and, and, and but so, yeah, like there's, there's hypocrisy and, and backstabbing. Um, other, it's just, it's not necessary. Um, and one of the most prominent responses is that they, they find their faith um, in, in a more personal manner on the golf course or hiking in the woods or something like that. 
And the thing is, is though, that this is not just a, a theological and Christian shift. This is a societal shift. Um, physical, tangible gatherings of, of people in, in any type of in institutional community has been on a drastic decline within our society for quite a while. I mean, not only is the church dying, but so are like rotary clubs and other organizations like that. But within the church, there's a kind of an, an assumption that we often speak of um, that has, 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 has become normative now, but this idea that, that what matters most is, is a privatized personal spirituality. What matters most is that I have a personal relationship with Jesus. Has actually been um, a growing emphasis for centuries. And a lot of it kind of is tied to uh, philosophical shifts that I won't get into today, but also good theological reasons. Many... Years ago, there was a shift of emphasis, many revivals that had happened that were focused on the need for a personal relationship with Christ, something internal, something impersonalized. And part of that was because of how much Christianity had become so institutionalized within the environment in which many areas and regions, if you were born in that country, you were a member of the church. Um, one of uh, I, I, my, my background, I was um, I was saved a, in a United Methodist Church, which draws from the tradition of John Wesley, um, and that was one of Wesley's emphasis on on kind of the mother church of the Anglican tradition, the Church of England. If you were born in England, you were basically a part of the Church of England, and he recognized that that can't be enough. There needs to be more. There needs to be some type of personal piety, some type of something internal, something personal to you. And so it was legit, I think, in many ways, but following the trends of our society, it's kind of evolved to the point in which that's all that matters. And the church is an antiquated institution that only exists to serve our own personal spirituality, and if it doesn't do it well, we just find it elsewhere. And we kind of see this from a lot of the reasoning and understanding within the surface. The question is, does that matter? To be honest, what sucks is to tread on this topic as a minister because everybody's like, of course it matters to you. Like, you want people to go to church. You know what I mean? And um, yes, I do. But I would say it does matter because what we are seeing is, in, is, is a very modern, very Western mentality and trajectory that is actually found nowhere in Scripture. Nor throughout the majority of the church's history. And the problem is, is we often like dichotomies of either or. But this idea of, is it what matters, your personal faith and spirituality? 
or that you are part of the institutional church. It's not an either or. But I'll argue and, and I think show that it's actually a both and. That we need and we see in the New Testament and throughout the history of church of the need for a personal internal encounter with Christ. Personal faith, devotion. But also we'll see that being bound to Christ through that faith means that we are bound to his people. To the church. Receiving the external corporate reminder of God's grace and favor the outcome of that gospel of grace. And so this is why, if you weren't here last week, I I split Paul's conversion into two. Last week, looking at the internal, personal transformation that occurred within Paul. In many ways, radical because it was so subtle. But then this week, I wanted to look at a big part of that conversion that is often ignored, which is the external. The preaching of the gospel to him, the laying on of hands, and the baptism by Ananias. And so the primary question that I want to address, the primary question that I was thinking about as I was studying this passage is why after encountering Paul, Jesus speaking directly to Paul, did he leave him blind? If you remember, he didn't know of any redemption coming. He would have assumed that he was blind because he was persecuting Christ, that he was facing judgment leaving him ignorant of the gospel and waiting for some other random guy, Ananias, to show up. And I'm going to begin with the answer to the question. I think it's because salvation in the New Testament was not just about personal spirituality. But you'll see over and over and over and over again that it is about God forming a new family built upon grace. The book of Acts is the work of the Holy Spirit to not just redeem individuals, but to form Christ's church. To join them together through the bond of grace. See, because Paul not only needed to be joined to Christ. Paul also needed to be joined to the church. So starting off, just to look at a few of these things that happened in in this account, we see in 10 through 14 that it says, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight at the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias, come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, of how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. 
And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. See, if, if, if Jesus would have just blinded him, revealed who he was, revealed the gospel to him, the Holy Spirit poured into his heart and his, his, the scales fallen off of his eyes, Paul would have been left transformed and restored to Christ. And Paul would have been left utterly separated from Christ's church. Because we see in this man, and if you keep, as we keep reading on, we'll see that it took a while for the church to receive him because they were scared to death of him. So he would have been left separated and isolated. But also, in this, it is doing something to Ananias. It tears down divisions and forces a radical realization of this reality of the gospel. He's forced to realize that God's grace goes to even the enemies of God's people. And I think that's one of the important things is that we see so many in the epistles and letters that are written in the New Testament. All of them are written to the church. All of them are fleshing out the reality of the gospel and it's always fleshed out in the context of community. Because grace can be a grand theological theme and idea. But it becomes real whenever we have to accept in, show mercy and forgiveness and deal with people who were once our enemies. When we have to deal with broken people. And so we see with Ananias, he's confronted by the reality of the gospel that he clearly holds very true too, but is also kind of like, you sure God? Is there another Saul in Tarsus? Probably was, because Saul was a very common name. But you know, he knew exactly who Jesus was talking about. And he's like, you're, you're, no. But God forces him to live out the gospel. I would say within the New Testament, this, the, you see this idea of it being fleshed out here, but we see it throughout the New Testament. Uh, the gospel only works out. It only fleshes it out. It's only forced to find its full realization in the midst of, of, of broken community. The English is really bad when we read the New Testament because the plural and the singular is the same for you. And usually when we read in the New Testament, you, is Jesus talking about me? We need, we need, we need like a, we need like a Pittsburgh translation so we can have like a you and a yins. And you will realize that almost every instance in the Greek, it's yins. Speaking to yins, guys. How the gospel manifests itself in the midst of, of you together, one another. It goes on in 15 through 16. It says, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. See, what's interesting here is that we see that not 
only is Paul's redemption about Paul's redemption, but it's also about the calling for the role that Paul was going to have within the church. And I mean, Paul had a significant role, but that same Paul later on would write to the church using the analogy of becoming a Christian, being knit into a body, a body that cannot exist whenever it's divided and separated, a body where each part has an integral and important role, a body in which no part of the body can say to any part of the body, you are not needed. That we are redeemed to Christ for communion with Christ, but also to be restored to redeemed community in which he has an important and integral part that we have within that community and family. And just to make a statement real quick, um, that there is a possible misunderstanding that could be drawn from this. Um, You, I, even Paul, we're not redeemed because God needs us. Actually, says that God doesn't need anyone or anything. We're not redeemed because of the service that we can offer to the church. If you think about it, it'd be kind of sick if you only adopted somebody because of what they can offer to your family and provide for your family. But on the flip, the church doesn't just simply exist because of what it can offer you and I. I mean, there's a lot of analogies within Scripture of our redemption, of, of adoption, being grafted into the people of God. But one of the primary ones is the imagery of being brought into a family. Like I said, I mean, maybe sometimes I hear stories about it, like back in the day, like if you had a big farm, like you just needed kids for labor, so you made more of them. Um, And there might be somebody who just adopted a kid because like, I see that kid and he's kind of strong and I need somebody to swing a hammer, so I'm going to adopt him for that. But that's not, it's not the nature of being adopted into family and being brought into the family. We're not brought in because of what we can offer and what we can give. But on the other hand, once we are part of a family, we become an absolutely integral aspect of that family. And the family is no longer the same without us. We're an integral part of it. And then finally in 17 through 19, it says, So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. And he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. Most of that Ananias was absolutely unnecessary for. Jesus, whenever he confronted him, proclaimed the gospel to him, of course. 
Could Jesus have, if he had blinded him, he could have removed the scales from his eyes? Most certainly. It is Jesus that gives his Holy Spirit to fill us, to transform us, and to regenerate us. All could have been done without Ananias. But we see over and over and over again, God has this manner and custom where he makes physical presence absolutely necessary. That he needed Ananias not because he needed him, but through Ananias coming, that it was through the laying of his hands, a physical touch, a physical presence, that then in that, God did what only God could do. And I will say just culturally and societally, we, we carry the assumptions that, that often that physical presence don't matter. As long as we have the ideas. God, Jesus didn't have Ananias send him a letter. Ananias probably would have loved to have sent him a letter. It'd be harder for Paul to kill him. Now he needed to send Ananias. Just the same as we had a lot of letters. It was, it was, it's called the Old Testament. A lot of good theology. It's scripture. And God said that that was not enough. That he had to dwell physically in our midst. No matter the trajectory that our society goes, we are unique because we are a faith of incarnation. The physical presence matters. And so in that, Paul had to have Ananias, a representative of the church, come and physically touch and lay his hands on him. And I'll say that, that this is just a reincurring and ongoing theme. This is what happened over and over and over again in Acts when anytime somebody encountered God separate from any representation of the church, especially people groups who were, were, were either hated, despised, or assumed to not be included by God's grace. Why did Peter and John have to be sent after the Samaritans believed? To be physically present, to lay hands on them to see God's work of the Holy Spirit manifesting so that they would know that they are accepted by God so they are brought into the church. We see this with Paul. We're going to read about this with the Roman centurion, Cornelius, in which he was encountered, in which he encountered Christ, encountered the gospel, but had to wait until the apostles came to lay hands on him, and to baptize him. And so there is a difference between a theological and conceptual union with the idea 
of the one holy Catholic apostolic church. That's very different than being tied and physically present with a local manifestation of that one holy Catholic and apostolic church. You could technically, I don't know, maybe technically, I don't know, I don't know legality of this, but you could technically be married to a mail-order bride and then never meet her, but that's not real marriage. Theoretically, you're married. Kind of important that you actually live together and be together for it to be marriage. And then there's this thing that after the scales are lifted, it says that Paul was baptized. I will say, and I I hear it over and over again, completely agree with it, but the baptism, we don't believe the baptism saves. And you don't need to be baptized to be saved. I think scripture is very clear that it is by grace through faith in Christ alone that one is saved means nothing else is required for that. On the other hand, after Pentecost, throughout the New Testament and throughout the early church, there was no concept whatsoever of an unbaptized Christian. It was an oxymoron. It was just something that that wasn't even within the framework. And I think it's interesting because as I was saying that all of those other things could have been done without Ananias except for the baptism of Paul. Because Paul couldn't baptize himself. He needed another to be there and to baptize him. I think that that's why in the New Testament, baptism was commanded from the very beginning and is so important. We see it in Acts that it is present in every conversion that happens. Anytime we see somebody redeemed through the internal and personal work of the Holy Spirit in their life, we see baptism by the church. Because in that, that sacrament, we have an external sign, something outside of us that is a mark of God's grace and promise and has under, been understood from the beginning by the church that is a sign that marks us as part of Christ's church. It was never left out. Because personal faith always led to a corporate faith. Personal redemption and communion with God always led to being brought into the communion of the saints. Always being brought into the church. And this is kind of foreign to us. And what I'm trying to get through this is we see in Paul a reoccurring theme over and over and over again all throughout Acts. 
That you have both the internal and personal, but always also the external and corporate. And they're not separated or divided. And this, this idea and concept sometimes is challenging, but not because, I think, of anything that is, is clearly taught in Scripture and found throughout the history of the church, but more because of evolution of modern thought within our society today. I think of, of St. Augustine's conversion. Um, one of the great theologians of the church. And his own reflections on his conversion would be, I think, quite foreign to us today. If you know anything about Augustine's conversion, you can, you can read about it. You can read his whole story in Confessions. Um, beautiful, wonderful. I highly recommend reading it at least the first three quarters. The last quarter gets kind of philosophical and weird about time and stuff like that. So if you want to just read the first three quarters, do that. But... Um, But in his confessions, he talks about how he was so opposed to the Christian faith. And then all of a sudden, he was was a a rhetorician and he loved great speaking. And there was a bishop, Bishop Ambrose, that he was super intrigued by. Not because he actually agreed with his teaching and ideas. He thought it was foolishness and, and, and idiotic. But Ambrose was such a good preacher that he decided, like, I just got to listen to this guy's eloquence. Kind of the same reason why some of you guys are here right now. (laughs) <laughs> but like Augustine, you'll eventually see that it's not just my brilliance of oratory. It, the ideas are actually good too. But what happened is through time, he began to be convinced and to realize that what Ambrose was preaching was true. He said he believed it. But Augustine didn't consider himself a Christian then. Today, in most traditions, we would. Part of it is he believed it, but he didn't want to submit to it. One of his, his, his famous prayers is, is um, St. Augustine. Another thing you'll learn from confessions is he really liked women. Um, and one of his famous prayers is, Lord, make me chaste, just not yet. Um, but then one day he was in, 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 a, in a field or in, in a garden wrestling with with what Ambrose was talking about, wrestling with all these different ideas, all of his study, all of the tension within his own heart. And he just remembers hearing children singing, take it up and read. And saw a Bible laying there and and read from, from the book of Romans. And he says in that moment, he felt like his heart was filled with pure light. His desire for rebellion, for for any of those things were removed and all he desired was Christ. He still doesn't speak of that as his conversion (coughs) because immediately after that, he sent word for Ambrose that he might be baptized and made part of Christ's church. And so we see over and over and over again, not just in the New Testament, throughout church history, different manners, different timelines, different orders. It gets kind of confusing, especially when you want a super neat and tidy theology of everything. But what we do see is this personal change of mind and heart that is personal and internal, but it's also tied 
to an external sign and being brought into and included into the people of God. And they had no concept of that being separate. To be saved is to be restored in communion with God, but also restored to real community with each other. The work of the gospel is the reversal of the fall, and we see in the fall that we were first separated by, from God, and then we were separated from each other. And now he is reversing that by restoring us personally to God, but then restoring us to one another. That the effects of the fall are being torn down. So, yes, one does not need to be a part of the church to be saved. Like I said, there is no concept of a Christian outside of the church in the New Testament or the early church. That's why when you read in the New Testament, especially within Acts, that if there is somebody who is not known by the community of believers, who is out preaching and teaching about the gospel, they would send representatives of the church to go and to see that person. One, to see if their teaching was correct, but secondly, so that they might be brought into the church. There was no concept in their mind saying like, oh, well, he self-identifies as a Christian, so he's good to go. No. If he is in Christ, he must be brought into the community. That's why church discipline and excommunication was such a weighty thing. Why they wrestled so much by that. It's why the reformers were so concerned, so torn by being excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church. And that's why, apart from theology, more ink was spilt by the early reformers by trying to show that they were still part of that historic tradition, still part of the Holy Catholic Church. They were just separate from Rome. Because the church mattered. That's why, as I talked about, John Wesley, when he was doing his revivals, he also argued to those who were doing the, these, the, 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 the meetings, the prayer meetings and gatherings and everything else, that they, wouldn't, they should not cease to gather on Sunday with the church, to receive the sacraments, to hear the word proclaimed, even though that church at that time was struggling and dying. And I always love to say to my Methodist brothers and sisters that both of the Wesleys died Anglicans. So if you really want to be a good Wesleyan, come here. Um, but, and that's why in every instance of direct divine encounter, included, it included the need for a physical representation from the church to go and finish the work God was doing. I said every instance was different, but in every instance, both the personal internal existed and also the external sacrament of baptism and the being brought into actual tangible fellowship of believers or the church. We see this today in Paul. We see this in the Samaritans. We'll see this with Cornelius. 
We saw this as I just read and talked about Augustine. It's not either personal relationship with Jesus or corporate participation in the life of the church because it's not an either or, it's a both and. I love um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Lutheran pastor and, and theologian. When he went back to Germany during, um, when the Nazis taken over, he had joined together with what was called the Confessing Church. At that time, um, the state church was under the authority and control of the Nazis. And the Confessing Church were primarily Lutherans and Reformed who gathered together and were unwilling to, to submit to the whims of Hitler and Nazi. And in that time of this kind of underground hidden church, which had its own issues, they actually split multiple times because they couldn't get along either. But during that time, he wrote this book called Life Together, which I, I think is quite beautiful. And he says this in, in, in that book. He says, let him who cannot be alone be aware of community. He will only do harm to himself and to the community. Alone you stood before God when he called you. Alone you had to answer that call. Alone you had to struggle and pray. And alone you will die and give an account to God. You cannot escape yourself for God has singled you out. If you refuse to be alone, you are rejecting Christ's call to you. And you can have no part in the community of those who are called. But also, let him who is not in community beware of being alone. Into the community you were called. The call was not meant for you alone. In the community of the called, you bear your cross, you struggle, you pray. You are not alone even in death. And on the last day, you will be only one of the great congregation of Jesus Christ. If you scorn the fellowship of the brethren, you reject the call of Jesus Christ. Church participation, the reception of the sacraments um, cannot save you. Only the work of the Holy Spirit within your own heart through the proclamation of the gospel can. And church is not required. It's only by grace through faith that we are saved. And nothing else is tacked on. But on the other hand, inclusion into the body of Christ, the actual tangible historic community of broken people redeemed by grace is actually part of the very gift that is ours by grace. So just to close, I, going back, I, I love this imagery of being brought into a family. Because I think that's used over and over again because it is a beautiful and powerful image of what the church is. It's not a dispenser of religious services. It's not a social club of like-minded people. It's not an antiquated avenue just for our own personal growth and spirituality. And it's something that requires us to actually be present with physically and tangibly. I mean, could you imagine, like I said, being adopted and saying, I've been adopted by this family, but you've never gone to one of their gatherings. <clears throat> you've never got together with any of them. 
You don't know anything about their traditions. You don't know anything about their weirdness. You've never experienced any of their awkward fights. You're adopted, and you say you're part of the family, but, but are you fully? And I love family because you, you don't choose your family. Because oftentimes, if you could, you wouldn't. And I understand the language often of having like your, your group of friends where it's like, I found these people who think just like me, agree with me, like me. We like all the same things. They're like family to me. Kind of, but not really. Because being like family to you means that I am bound to these people by a blood, even though sometimes I don't want to be. That's more what it's like to be family. And family is important. It's incredibly important. And it's, it's necessary. When you have no family, it's devastating and destructive. But family isn't just something we think about as, well, I have my family because of what I can gain out of it. Family is much deeper than that. See, I think... Being part of family is important because when you're actually connected to a family, that means that you have the beauty of the love and the encouragement and the support. But also being a part of the family means that you also get to experience the, the, the Christmas gathering where your uncle has a little bit too much wassail and goes on weird political rants. And then your aunt gets really ticked off because she had too much wine. And everybody's yelling at each other. And yet also, on the other hand, as awkward and as weird as that is and the tensions, you're bound together by not a shared affinity or we like each other. We're bound together because of blood. And that same uncle would drop everything if you were in crisis to show up by your side. Even though... He's a loud mouth jerk a lot of the time. And see, that's how the gospel of grace fleshes out in the community. I understand a lot of the reasons why we've abandoned church. Because it's a jacked up family. But another thing that, that Bonhoeffer said that I thought was quite beautiful is that we should not be surprised when the church is messed up. Because if the gospel is true, then the church is always going to be filled with broken people. Broken people who are joined together, not because we always like each other, but because we share the same blood. That we are bound together by grace. And I bring this up because we're trying to form a church. Next Sunday, we're going to be having a, a meal together. Hopefully nobody has too much communion wine and goes on political rants. But um, we're, we're going to have a family meal together to celebrate two years together in existence. And the only reason why we're planting a church is because I still think the church matters. I still think that, that Christ is not only just drawing individuals to himself, but he is reversing the divisions of the fall and drawing broken people together to learn how to live together out of grace. 
and not planting a church because we're going to be a perfect church. We're going to be jacked up. Like some of the things that people said are the reasons why they left the church. Like some of my sermons are going to suck and they're not going to be beneficial for your own personal edification. Maybe this one, I don't know. And I'll probably fail you and, and you will probably fail me. And I think if everybody just stood up and shared everybody's view on current political um, events right now, we would hate each other. And things will be broken because if the gospel is true, he keeps bringing in broken, messed up people that are joined together by grace. And so that's, that's my desire. I hope that's our desire is that we would not be a perfect church. We would not be a church that isn't broken. We would not be a church that doesn't have occasions for reason why you, should, you would want to say, I don't know if I really want to keep going to church. But in spite of that, we're a church that are joined together by a shared blood. As Paul says, by one baptism, one faith, one God and Redeemer that are knit together by the blood of Christ and the grace that we have all received through the work of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the gospel. And I will also say, we're not the only church. And even if, for some reason, in God's providence, we don't survive, no matter how frustrating and as broken as it might be, the church still matters. It's our gift by grace where we get to live out the grace of God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for upcoming sermons and consider joining us in person for Sunday worship. To learn more, check out our website at franklinredeemer.org. mercy, my God, is the theme of my song. The joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue. Thy free grace alone from the first.